0: Coming up on Philosophy Talk, Paradoxes with Roy Sorenson from Dartmouth College. Consider the lover who makes love to everyone who doesn't make love to themselves and no others. What does
1: he or she do on lonely weekends? Consider the barber who shaves everyone who does not shave
0: themselves and no one else. Does he shave himself? Well, if he does, then he isn't that barber. But if he doesn't, he also isn't that barber. Russell asked, is the set of all sets that are not members of themselves a member of itself? Frege replied, damn you, Russell. To cross the room, you first have to get halfway across. And to do that, you have to get halfway to halfway across. And so on, and so on, and so on. But you only have a finite amount of time.
1: So you might as well just sit there and enjoy philosophy talk. Paradoxes.
0: Coming up on Philosophy Talk. After the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything.
1: except your intelligence. I'm John Perry.
0: And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco.
1: But our conversations often begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus.
0: Today our conversation is about paradoxes. First, we examine the very idea of a paradox. What exactly is a paradox? Are there real, irresolvable paradoxes, or do all paradoxes simply dissolve when you think hard about them?
1: You know, can paradoxes creep up everywhere in math, physics, logic, uh, even economics, or maybe that's not so surprising? There are visual paradoxes, and there are even auditory paradoxes. We'll go on to examine in some detail some some of the famous paradoxes and also some of the not-so-famous paradoxes.
0: You know, John, paradoxes can also be mind-blowing, but do paradoxes have any deep theoretical or even practical significance? Can they teach us anything about the world? We'll conclude with that question.
1: I did a little sleuthing uh, on the Internet the other day about paradoxes. I searched for every kind of paradox I could imagine. Uh, logical paradoxes mathematical paradoxes political economic visual auditory all that stuff and and I found that you know even when you get really wild and you you, you can find things like uh, the dartmouth paradox the hmo paradox and there's even a cooking paradox
0: oh, <laughs> so your ter- your search turned up lots of paradoxes?
1: Absolutely. Did you know that there is uh, something called the American cooking paradox that explains the prevalence of ranch dressing as a dipping condiment?
0: (laughs) I didn't know that. So what's your deeper point there, John?
1: Well, my deeper point, (laughs) nice of you to suspect (laughs) that I had a deeper point, Ken. Uh, There are lots of things that people call paradoxes. Some of them really uh, are, as you say, deep and mind-blowing. But a lot of so-called paradoxes are just kind of cute arguments that lead to surprising conclusions. Uh, They're funny, but but if we're going to have a fruitful discussion, a philosophical discussion, we need to focus on genuine paradoxes and and leave the pseudo-paradoxes to one side.
0: Okay, so you tell me, what's a genuine paradox?
1: Well, as I understand
0: it, uh, a good definition of paradox is you
1: start out with some premises that seem to be true, maybe even indubitable, and you go through your reasoning, apparently without mistakes, And you reach a conclusion that is either just inconsistent with where you started or or makes no sense at all.
0: So give me an example of a genuine
1: paradox. Well, uh, take the paradox of the heap, or it's called the Sorites paradox sometimes. Start with a huge heap of sand. I'll put it right here in front of your uh, computer.
0: Got a huge heap of
1: sand. (laughs) All right. Now just take one teeny little grain of sand from that heap. Do you still have a heap of sand?
0: Oh, of course we still have a heap. The, the table's still a mess. I mean, you can't turn a heap into a non-heap by just taking away a single grain. And I think that that's what it is to be a heap,
1: actually. Now, 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 be careful there. Does it matter how many grains of sand your initial heap
0: contains? Uh, I'm not sure. Why would it? I don't, I don't see why that would matter.
1: Well, if it had a, a million grains, you admitted that taking away one would still leave a heap. What if it had 100,000 grains? Would, would uh, taking away one turn that into a non-heap?
0: Uh, I think no, it would turn it into a non-heap, but why does that matter?
1: And, and you do accept logic that everything either is a heap or not a heap.
0: Uh, yeah, okay, I accept that, so why does that matter? Well, the, you've also
1: accepted the general principle that for any size of heap, you can't make it a non-heap by taking away just a single grain.
0: I, I, I accept that,
1: it's perfectly fine, seems like a good principle. You're in deep trouble now.
0: Uh, wait, well, how to... How do... Oh, I remember this one, yeah, if I start out with a heap and keep taking away a grain at a time, eventually I, I will get to a non-heap because I'll get down to the last grain. Right, and and since one
1: grain of sand is not a heap make, there must be some point before you get there where where you've got a non-heap, where taking one grain does turn a heap into a non-heap.
0: But you know, here's the problem, isn't it? There couldn't be such a point. That would mean there was a smallest possible heap. How many grains of sand are in the smallest possible heap? A 100? Well, if 100 is good enough for a heap, I would think 99 is good enough for a heap, too.
1: Well, there's the paradox. I mean, each thing has to be a heap or not. Uh, but if it's if it's a heap, taking away gr- one grain can't turn it into a non-heap. So you're just going to keep taking away grains of sand uh, until none are left,
0: okay, and you'll always have a heap. Let's go over that again. There's got to be a mistake somewhere.
1: Well, uh, let's not go over it again. <laughs> Your feeling is the one people always have when confronted with a genuine paradox. They think there's got to be a mistake. The process of trying to figure out where the mistake lies is seldom simple. It can take a
0: lot of thinking, and it can drive people utterly crazy. It, it sure can. And our roving philosophical reporter, Zoe Corneli, has a story about a very famous paradox from the worlds of philosophy, math, and logic that had just that kind of distracting effect on one of the great philosophers of all time. She files this report.
2: The story begins in the late 1800s in Germany with a scholar named Gottlob Frege.
3: And Frege was a sort of an unknown mathematician working on philosophical issues at the University of Vienna.
2: Paolo Kozu teaches the philosophy of math and logic at UC Berkeley. He says Frege was trying to come up with a way to put all of mathematics in terms of logic. He was on the verge of publishing his masterwork called Basic Laws of Arithmetic. Meanwhile, over in Cambridge, the charismatic Bertrand Russell was just coming of age as a philosopher.
3: You know, Russell was a very uh, influential and well-connected person in the British uh, social life. Frege was sort of a loner. Uh, His classes were attended by very few people in general.
2: And it was around the turn of the century when these two very different personalities began to come in contact with one another.
3: In 1901, Russell discovers the works by Frege and um, starts working on Frege. And uh, he realizes that there was a very simple proof which showed that the system that Frege had constructed was contradictory. And that, for a logician, is the kiss of death.
2: Russell's paradox related to one of the basic concepts in logic, idea of a set or collection of things for example the set of all red things
3: okay i think of this as an abstract object that contains as elements all the red things in the world for instance you know my shirt if it is red and other stuff of this sort
2: okay next question
3: can a set be a member of itself well certainly not in the case we just mentioned you know the set of red things is not red But there are cases where this seems to make perfect sense. For instance, consider the set of all abstract things. That set is abstract. It's an abstract object. So it looks like it should be very natural to say that it belongs to itself.
2: The problem comes in when we talk about a set not being a member of itself.
3: We saw an example of such a a class, right, of thing that does not belong to itself the um, set of all red things but now consider all of them into a single collection so there is going to be that particular class there is going to be the class of all blue things because that also doesn't belong to itself right and lots more let's put them all together into a huge set,
2: and let's give it a name why Is set Y a member of itself or
3: not? Well, if Y is in Y, it must satisfy the condition not belonging to itself. So if Y is in Y then Y is not in Y. And now let's try the other way. Well, suppose Y is not in Y. Well, why is it not in there? You know, why is it not in Y? Because it doesn't satisfy the condition, which was not belonging to itself, but then if it doesn't satisfy not belonging to itself, it satisfies the opposite. And so that's what we got. No matter how you go, if Y is in Y, then Y is not in Y. And then if Y is not in Y, then it ends up being in Y. And that's the contradiction.
2: So once Russell discovers the paradox, he has to tell Frege about it.
3: He writes this letter to Frege, you know, without making heavy weather out of this, saying, you know, I have a small remark on, you know, on your principles. Um, I'm puzzled because I derived this consequence, and that's a problem. And he doesn't say much more. So Frege writes back saying, thank you very much for your observation, and uh, you're indeed correct. Um, But he expresses the hope that a solution can be found.
2: The second volume of his book, Basic Laws, was already at the print shop, but Frege quickly wrote in an appendix acknowledging the contradiction and suggesting a possible solution.
3: Well, it turned out that it was um, truly a devastating problem for the Fregean system, but it took Frege about four years to finally convince himself that there was no easy fix to the problem that Russell had raised.
2: Frege's project never fully revived. He suffered from bouts of depression and eventually gave up the endeavor altogether. Bertrand Russell attempted a solution, but it only worked if you conveniently ignored certain basic facts.
3: See, no solution to paradoxes ever comes without a cost. Something has to give. That's the nature of the paradox.
2: For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Corneli.